0: Ephesians three verses 17 through 19 for this morning. I'll read them right now. This is the word of the Lord, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If you are renting a house for a short period of time, you treat it differently than if you are purchasing it with the plan of raising your family in there. Uh, if you are renting it, you think strategically about where you place stuff and all of that in a way that is more short-sighted. You're not going to make capital investments in it like you would if you're moving in there for the long term, I think, of a house that I was renting, and I used the word house stretching its definition fully there when I was in seminary, a single guy, and a, it was very, it was a prefabricated house, like it came from a kit that was built, and there was some water damage on the floor, it had like a linoleum kitchen floor, and there was water damage that was seeping up from underneath the floor, the crawl space, so you could start to see water stains on the floor, and the floor felt a little soft and wavy at parts, and uh, you know, we were thinking our lease is up in a few months. Who cares? And then one day, the refrigerator fell <laughs> into the floor, like a foot, foot and a half down into the floor where it hit the bottom of the crawl space. And there it was. And it was one of those refrigerators had the freezer at the bottom. And so we're looking at this like, well, we're only here again another month or two, do we really need a freezer? No, really, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that we do. Now, if you were living in that house, like permanently, if you're going to raise your family in that house, you would think, you know, I bet in the next few years we will need a freezer, and so we'll not have the hole in the floor, and we'll deal with it differently. And I know so many military families here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're going to be somewhere maybe four years or five years, you treat the house differently than if you're going to be there six months, you know? Um, You just have a different approach to it. There are two different Greek words to cover that distinction. There's the Greek word for, you know, somebody who passes by or somebody who's staying with you for a little while. And there's a different Greek word for somebody who moves in and makes it their place, their home. And again, you understand this distinction. If you have house guests coming to visit, they probably show up with a suitcase or two. They don't show up with a moving truck and bring in their own furniture. It's just a difference. Now, in Ephesians, it describes Christ in verse 17 as moving in to your hearts, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the prayer request that Paul has been making. All of chapter 3 is this this prayer that Paul began in verse 1 and interrupted himself. Remember, verses 1 all the way down through verse 14 was pretty much his interruption, his parentheses. Then he gets to his actual prayer request, which we looked at last week in verse 16, that you would be strengthened with the power of the spirit in your inner being. So that's his prayer request, that you would be strong, spiritually speaking. Now, it was noteworthy that Paul is writing this as this one of his prison epistles. He's writing this while he's in custody. And he's not asking you to pray for his freedom and release. And he's not praying for an end to Roman persecution and for an advancement of religious freedom or those kind of things. That's not the content of his prayer. The content of his prayer is that you, believers, would grow strong, spiritually speaking. And he describes that would take place, the Holy Spirit would abide in your heart and give you spiritual strength to grow up. And this is going to be a theme throughout Ephesians. Back in chapter 2, God has given you good works, and so you should do them. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, but mostly chapter 4, becomes about what it means to be strong. And so this morning, verse 17, he's saying that this strength is seen with Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. That word dwell is that second category of word. He's not saying that Christ would be a visitor to your hearts, that Christ would stop by with a suitcase and rinse the place for a season of your life. He's saying that Christ would move in. And the, the word here in, in, in the Greek is translated in the ESV dwell. And it's a very good translation, dwell. I mean, you, when you, you don't dwell in your friend's house or in a place where you visit even for a month, you dwell in your own house. And some translations might say live or um, kind of move in is the implication here, that Christ would make his permanent residence in your heart. That's the prayer request. And he compares it to being rooted and grounded in love, the end of verse 17. So, so this happens through faith. You place your faith in Christ. We looked at this last week. You place your faith in Christ and Christ moves into your heart common English Christian expression is invite Jesus into your heart, or do you have Jesus in your heart? It's not a common biblical expression. This is the only place you see it in the Bible. And yet it's a very significant place that Christ would dwell, move into your heart. And as a result of that, verse 16, that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit. And then the end of verse 17, that you would be rooted and grounded in love. So Christ moves into your heart and that makes you strong, spiritually speaking. He mixes his metaphors here, the beginning of the verses, Christ would move in like he would back the moving truck up and move into your heart. And now he changes his metaphor to you would be rooted and strengthened, grounded. So a different metaphor, not a house guest, but a different metaphor is the plant. And you maybe buy a little plant. I have a, a, a plant in my office right now that I purchased at Ikea and it has lived longer than any plant I have ever possessed in my life. Remember that plant while I'm in Chad? Remember it? (laughs) We'll see. And it grows, and I I upscale it. I get a different pot, and a bigger pot, and it grows more. And it's in its third pot, and it's even bigger still. And, you know, I can't keep that game up forever. Eventually, you have to take the plant and plant it outside in the, the real world, in the dirt. And then it's out there. And then what happens? I mean, either the roots take... And it gets nutrients from the ground and it grows deep roots and it grows bigger and stronger or the roots don't take and it doesn't get grounded. And then the wind comes and it blows away or it pops back out of the ground or a raccoon absconds with it or, you know, Garfield eats it. I don't know what would happen to it, but something bad would happen to it and it would, it would die. But when it's rooted and grounded, it grows strong and the winds can hit it and the winds can batter it and the, the floods can go over it. And then when the water recedes, it's still there because it's strong. So what happens in your Christian life? Does Jesus pass by your heart and move along and now you're left tossed back and forth by every wave of doctrine? Every trial becomes life-threatening to you spiritually because you're not rooted, you're weak. Or does Christ grow roots in your heart? Does the love of God grow deep in your heart? And so the trials come and the wind batters you and the waves of doubt hit you, and yet you're strong and you withstand them. Chapter four in Ephesians is all about the difference between a child who is tossed to and fro by the waves. And Paul says, you need to grow up into mature manhood. That's what this prayer is about. That Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith so that you can have strength. Now the strength here is gonna be strength to bear three paradoxes. That's what the the rest of verses 18 and 19 is a series of paradoxes that you would have the strength to bear. I wanna give you that outline this morning. When you're living in love, it gives you the strength to bear these three paradoxes, and the, I chose these words carefully. A paradox is, you know, something that seems contradictory. American Western thinkers want to solve the paradox and show you how one side is wrong versus the other side. That's not the right way you approach a paradox. Their true intention—you don't get rid of one. You figure out how to bear up underneath them. You figure out how to live under the weight of both of those truths. Well, the love of Christ lets you bear these paradoxes. Bunyan and his Book all loves excelling on this passage describes this passage as quote Paul describing the inexpressible. And I love that little line right there, describing the inexpressible. Because Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, I mean, he's one of the world's best-selling authors of all time. If he says this truth is inexpressible, you should pay attention. (laughs) It's one thing for you know a normal person to say this is inexpressible. One of the world's best authors ever says, I don't know how to express that in words. Pay attention. This passage describes the inexpressible with a series of paradoxes. And I'll walk us through them this morning first. Paul's praying that you would have the strength to comprehend the incomprehensible, that's verse 18, that you might have the strength, verse 18, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Now, it's missing the kind of the object of that sentence. It doesn't say the breadth and length and height and depth of God, but the context here is clearly of the love of Christ. It's Christ who's dwelling in your heart in verse 17. You would be strengthened in your inner man in verse 16. And then in verse 19, to know the love of Christ. And so this height and breadth and length and depth is about the love of Christ. And that makes sense in the context here that Paul is praying that by letting the love of Christ take root in your heart, you would be able to understand the scope of it. But the scope of it is incomprehensible. He uses these four words here, breadth and length and height and depth. And he's not really after describing the dimensions, like we measure furniture, like, oh, my couch is this wide, by that deep, by that tall. He's he's more in different kinds of dimensions here, where the breadth of it is talking about the scope of it, how broad, categorically speaking, how broad and how wide this is, how expansive the love of Christ is. The length of it, I think, is about time, how long the love of Christ lasts. The height of it is about its source, so it's coming from heaven down to earth. The depth of it, I think, is about the multifaceted nature, the profound nature of it. Conceptually, how complex it is. They use the phrase Paul used earlier in Ephesians the manifold beauty of it. That's what's behind the depths. So these are four different kinds of Category distinctions Paul is making here, to say that you would have the strength to comprehend them when in reality they are not comprehensible. Because you'll never get your mind around these things, and that's why he uses such an expansive list of terms here. He speaks like in, in metric terms, that you would understand the, the breadth of it, the, you know, the, the volume of it. He speaks in chronological terms, the duration of it or the length of it. He speaks in theological terms, the height of it. He speaks in intellectual terms, the depth of it. So get those categories here. He's trying to cover everything. The scope of it, the duration of it, the theological content of it, the philosophical nature of it, all that's encompassed by these four words. Let's just look at it one one at a time here. He says he's praised that you would comprehend the breadth of God's love. That's how vast it is, how wide it is what kind of categories it includes. The breath, it just gives you this picture of somebody with their arms open inviting you. And so how wide are the arms of God's love? How wide is God when he stretches out his arms in love towards the world? Isaiah 65 describes God as having his arms outstretched towards Israel, inviting them to come believe. And that's the verse that Jesus quotes, of course, in his ministry when he's up on the hill overlooking Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem. He says, how often I longed to gather you together like a mother hen to her chicks, but you were not willing. The Old Testament idiom for that is God with his arms outstretched inviting people in. And certainly that's in Paul's mind here. The love of God is God with his arms outstretched inviting us in. I mean, we can never understand just how wide God's love is that he's inviting people to come and believe in him. I think of powerful way to get your mind to stretch its view of the love of God is to think of something more immediate like your own sin. Think of how broad your sin is. I'm trying to get you to stretch your mind here to think of the breadth of God's love. Let's do it backwards here. Let's think of the breadth of your sin. Think of how wide your sin is. Is there any area of your life that is untouched or untainted by your sin? Your marriage, your parenting, your work, Your future, your finances, your entertainment choices. Are any of those untouched by your sin? Think of your own categories. Think of new categories. Get your mind to think of new areas in your life that you haven't perhaps conceptualized before and then see how your sin taints those areas. So I'm trying to get you to make this tent in your mind bigger. Stretch this tent out to cover more and more things in your life so that you see how all those things are covered by your sin or tainted by your sin. And then understand that the love of God is broader than those things because Jesus atones for your sin. He went to the cross and bore God's wrath and penalty for your sin in all those categories of life. So however big you can stretch this tent to cover your sin, you recognize that God's love is bigger than even that. So you get your mind to go bigger and broader and you start to understand that no matter how big you stretch your mind, the love of God is bigger still. Get your mind to go even further, and the love of God is always just ahead of it. You'll never exhaust it. You'll never exhaust it. You hear people sometimes almost even jokingly say, like, I think heaven will be boring. Probably not. <laughs> what am I gonna do in heaven? It's just like once I see everything and learn everything, and I'm still there forever. Well. Understand that the love of God is bigger than everything you're seeing or experiencing. So you see and learn something new today, you recognize that God's love is bigger than that. There's still more for you to explore tomorrow. And you go to the edge of your knowledge tomorrow, and the love of God is still bigger than that. You've got another day after that to keep pressing forward forever. You'll never catch the love of God. It's not containable. It's not catchable. It's not comprehensible. You'll never get your mind around it. And you have an infinite journey, an infinite time to do so. Dieter and I went on our honeymoon to Buenos Aires, Argentina. And there's a river there. We walk down to the river and, you know, it's on the maps and everything. And everybody calls the river and we go down there. And unlike any river I've ever been to before, you can't see across the river. It's enormous. The Rio de la Plata, it's enormous. You cannot get your eyes to go to the other side of it. There's a, what they call a bus that goes across it, the um, barquebus, the boat bus that makes these shuttle runs across it. And so we took the bus one day, uh, bus again, um, across the water. And, you know, I want to go up to the window and it's a boat's enclosed because you're going on this water. And I, I go up to the window as the boat is, got, you know, setting out. And you can't see across the river from the front of the boat. And the sun sets as we're on the boat. And the, Never got to see the other side. I think I fell asleep on the boat, actually, is what happens. (laughs) So it is with the love of God. You stand on the shore of where you are now, and you cannot see the breadth of it. You cannot see across the river to the other side. You start to journey across it. The sun will set before you get to the other side. You won't be able to see it. That's the breadth of it, the length of it, how long the love of God lasts. It's duration. I mean, obviously, it has no end going forward. And our our human minds struggle with that concept. We can do it, sort of. We can say, okay, I'm not going to have an end. I'm here now. I'm not going to have an end. I'll physically die. But then my soul will live forever. My body will be raised from the grave, reunited with my soul forever. So we'll be back together again and just keep going forever. And the love of God will still be there wherever I am. Okay, that's one direction. Do you recognize that the love of God has no beginning? And that's where our minds quit. We can't do that has no beginning. Like before there was anything, before there was time, there was God and love is in God. But even that sentence doesn't make sense to him. Before there was time? What does the word before mean? That sentence is nonsense. Before there was time. There's no before if there's no time. <laughs> That's why both Genesis and John, you can picture Moses and John both kind of throwing up their Hands with this and say, okay, let's try it this way. In the beginning, there was God. Again, it's better, but it still isn't really in the beginning. So, point one, there was already something before that. Well, that's not point one anymore, but let's just deal with it that way. Point one, God's already there. That's the eternal nature of God's love. Before there was anything, before there was the beginning, there was God. And love is always with God. I never grow tired of explaining it this way, but this is why the doctrine of the Trinity is so critical for understanding the eternal nature of love. His true love is always externally focused. It always has to have an object. You can't really love yourself in in a true noble way. Love has to have an object, external. So how can love be eternal before there is anything else? Because God loves His Son. The Father loves His Son eternally. Radiant love towards the Son. The image of the Father in all of the beauty and majesty of the Father is perfect in the Son. And the Father has nothing but love for the Son. The Son in return has nothing but love for the Father. The Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. That's why He's called the Spirit. He's the Spirit of love and fellowship and communion between the Father and the Son. So there is a stronger form of love before creation than you and I will ever be capable of ourselves because our image is tainted and we don't have a right self-image of ourselves and our spirit is corrupt and but not God's spirit. God's image is perfect. His spirit is perfectly is perfect in love and fellowship and joy and communion. All of that is eternal before time. That's what Paul is saying here, that the the breadth of God's love you can't understand. And the duration of it, you can't understand. The length of it, how long this has lasted. As long as there has been God, there has been love. Our minds will never understand that. But that's Paul's prayer, is that you would keep pressing your mind into eternity, forward and backward, to understand the eternal nature of love. Third, height. you understand the height of love, stretching up to heaven, that God's love goes up to heaven? You can reverse engineer this one like we did earlier with breath. If you're saying that God's love goes all the way up to heaven, then understand that God's arm is not too short to save. God's love can stretch all the way down and save you. No matter how sinful you are, God's love can still reach you and rescue you. This is what's behind so much of the imagery in the Old Testament of people trying to climb up towards God. They want to work their way to God to make it perhaps easier for God to save them. This is the sin of the people at at Babel. They want to get out of the floodwaters. They don't trust God. He's not going to flood the earth again. So they'll build up towards God. They want to be like God and build towards him. As if God needed that help. (laughs) Like I am at the top of a really tall tower, God, so it's easier for you to hear me now. Obadiah, verse 4, says people admire, ungodly people admire the eagle. Admire the eagle's nest because it's up so tall. It's up so close to God. It must be safe up there at the top of the tree. So close to God. And yet God will cast them down. This is, this is in the DNA of every self-righteous person. Every works-based religion has this in their DNA, that you think you can work yourself towards God to make it easier for God to save you. You get a little bit closer to him, you put a little bit on the table, and God's going to be more inclined to save you. Because there's no way God could save somebody who is a wretched sinner. So you've got to you know, get yourself a little bit closer to him to make it easier for him to save you. And of course, none of our works, if you understand the breadth of your sin, you recognize that none of your works can bring you closer to God. The more you work for salvation, the further apart you're getting from him. You made a wrong turn. Don't keep going. Turn around. You cannot work to get towards God. That's the height of his love. It originates in heaven and it stretches all the way down to the lowest sinner. His arm is never too short to save. And fourthly, the depth. And I really think in the context of Ephesians here, depth is capturing the manifold beauty of God's love. That every angle you look at it at, it's different. And you see different perfections all the time. I think the manifold beauty of God's love is most on display at the cross. Isn't it? Where you see the holiness of God on display. You see the love of God on display, certainly through the father sending his son and Jesus dying as a substitute. You see the holiness of God that he pours out wrath, even turns his face away. You see the justice of God in the death of Christ. You see the mercy of God in his words from the cross, praying for forgiveness of those, of the very centurion is overseeing his death. You see so many facets of God's love at the cross, and of course, not just only the cross. You see facets of God's love in every area of life, but they're so clearly on display at the cross. And do you think you will ever fully understand those facets of God's love as seen at the cross? Never, 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 of course not. But that's Paul's prayer that you would in verse 18 comprehend it. Even that word comprehend is a phenomenal word. Kata lumbano is the Greek word. And kata is like an, an intensive prefix on it. We have, the English word might be like super. I'm going for a walk. I'm going for a super walk. <laughs> That's this word. It's intensifying the word of what's happening here. Lumbano is the word for, for casting out or throwing away. And so it's translated here comprehend, but it's, it's more than even comprehend. It's like it's, sometimes this word is translated like overtake or seize or capture is one way it's translated kidnap if it's in a negative context, the idea is that you're throwing something, but you're overthrowing it. So you're wrapping it up. You're getting your arms all around it and you're, you're, you're grasping it. So Paul's not just saying, listen, I, I'm praying that you would comprehend the incomprehensible. He's saying, I'm praying that you would overtake it. It's got an infinite breadth and an infinite height and an infinite depth but I'm praying that you would exceed that in your understanding of it, which of course, if it is infinite, you cannot do. But that's Paul's prayer. That you would capture it and wrap it up and seize it. That you would comprehend the incomprehensible. Second part of this paradox, that you would know the unknowable. That you would comprehend the incomprehensible and that you would know the unknowable. Again, a very funny word play here. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? <laughs> I pray that you would know this, that it's impossible to know. Here, here's an impossible task. I would like it done by lunchtime kind of line. Paul's prayer that you would know what you cannot know. Now, before we talk about how he unpacks this, just appreciate for a second that Paul would categorically reject the common American distinction between knowledge and love. Americans love to say that knowledge and love are in contradiction or an opposite, you know, and usually it's, it's you hear people say that when they're poo-pooing theology, like, oh, you read theology, cue ominous music, dun-dun-dun. <laughs> uh, I, I don't need the theological training. I don't need the theological understanding of God. I'm more focused on the, the love of God. Oh, that's so, so spiritual, isn't it? Try that with your, your wife. Honey, I don't need to learn anything about you. I don't need to learn what you like or what you don't like or what you really like, because I'm just focused on loving you. I don't think that it will work very well. I don't think that's an accurate expression of love, is it? How can you tell your wife you love her, but you don't want to learn about her? Of course, knowledge fuels love. And of course, love fuels knowledge. The more you learn about God the more you should love him. And the more you love him, the more you're going to want to learn about him. So in Paul's mind, knowledge is the fuel here. It is the wood that is feeding the fire of love. If you want to burn your fire of love towards God more, you feed it knowledge. You don't pit knowledge against love. You feed love knowledge. If you love someone, you know what they love. If you love someone, you want to magnify them by learning about them and studying them. And understand how this is, when you're talking about the perfections of God, this is very much a one-way street. It's different than in marriage. So in marriage, you learn about your wife more, and you learn her strengths and your weaknesses. And as you learn her weaknesses, your love for her is solidified and reinforced, and she feels more confident in it because you love her in spite of her weaknesses and vice versa. As your weaknesses are more on display for your spouse, her love for you is strengthened because her commitment is strengthened in light of your weaknesses. Now, do you see the critical way that our love for God is different than that? Because as we grow in knowledge of Him, we don't learn about God's weaknesses and therefore strengthen our commitment to Him. As we learn about, as we grow our knowledge of God, we learn more about His perfections, which include His love towards us. Meanwhile, our own imperfections are more and more on display. The more we understand the breadth of our sin, The more we understand how how sinful we are, the more powerful our understanding of God's love is because we recognize it is bigger than that. So God's commitment is always magnified. God's love is always magnified as our sin is more on display to ourselves. And so Paul says, I want you to know the love of Christ. How do you know the love of Christ? Well, you know who Christ is. He is the Savior. He's Psalm 24. He's the King of glory. That's who you're studying. You're studying the King of glory. He's the image of the Father. If you've seen me, Jesus says, you have seen the Father. He's the firstborn over all creation. In other words, before there was anything created, Jesus existed. In the beginning, he was with God because he was God. God. That's who you're studying. That's who your knowledge is feeding. So the study of God is the study of Christ. And the study of God and the study of Christ is the study of the love of Christ because there his perfections are on display. God's love is free, our love is not. God's love initiates, our love reciprocates. We can't love God based upon our own free will because our free will is enslaved to sin. So God initiates love towards us. God shows us his love through Jesus Christ. God is the initiator. We respond. We love him because he first loved us. It doesn't go backwards. God doesn't love us because we first loved him. We love him because he first loved us, which is more magnified when we understand our sin is what compelled him to set his love upon us, not our righteousness, which we possess not. He loved us before we Began. So God's love is free. Ours is responsive. God's love is divine. Ours is human and falling. God's love is everlasting with no beginning. Do you understand God loved you before you existed? He loved you before the universe existed. And he certainly loved you before you existed. That was his response to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, go here, do this, say this. Jeremiah says, no. And God says, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before you existed, God loved you. God's love is transforming. God's love changes your heart. Your heart doesn't change God. Your love towards God doesn't change him. His love towards you changes you. God's love is pure. Your love is tainted by sin. God's love is pure. God's love is incorruptible. It's unalterable. Your love is corruptible. Your love is for sale. It is bought. It is influenced. It is corrupted by sin and your own self-desire. God's love is none of those things. And I say that just to challenge you to keep in your own mind, the more you learn about your own love, the more you learn about God's love because you recognize that it is bigger, better, and more pure than all of your love put together. So you study God and you learn about his love. You study your own failings and your own sin that just makes you understand God's love is better. And all this is done by the Holy Spirit who's convicting you of sin. First Corinthians 8 verse 2. If anyone imagines he knows anything, he knows nothing. <laughs> That's just a great verse for a student right there. If you imagine you know something, guess what? You're wrong. You don't yet know as you ought to know. You're just imagining right now. And God's love is bigger than anything you're imagining. This is why you don't start studying the love of God by studying yourself, you start studying the love of God by studying Him, studying Christ. A human study of God is Fetile, you can't approach it like you do academics. You can't sit down with a notebook and a book and just read about it. It's all spiritual. You study the love of God by reading the scripture, of course, by devoting yourself to the study of God and by the Holy Spirit applying it to you. It is a spiritual endeavor. You can't be like Thomas who says, unless I feel the nail holes, then I'll believe. There's a better love than that. And there's a love that comes through. Verse 17 says, faith, not through sight, but a love that comes through faith, verse 17 says. That's this kind of strong love. That leads to the third paradox. To be filled with the infinite. So to comprehend the incomprehensible, to know the unknowable, and finally to be filled with the infinite. That's the last part. If you, if you thought you could handle those first two paradoxes, if you're like, okay, I get it. I'll never, I'll never fully comprehend the love of God, but I'm gonna have fun trying. God's love will fuel me that. I'll never fully know it, but I'll devote my life to studying it I'm in. Well, verse, the third one, you can just give up on. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. (laughs) Do you catch the paradoxical nature of that? That you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, that's just funny. (laughs) One commentator says, there has never been any more extreme, bold, or grandiose, or ludicrous prayer than this. It's like me holding up my Nalgene bottle and saying, I'm going to fill it with all the fullness of the ocean. You can fill the Nalgene bottle with the ocean. That's true. But you cannot fill the Nalgene bottle with all the fullness of the ocean. That's false <laughs> and really funny. Paul's saying, I'm praying that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Where would you even start to be filled with the fullness of God? I mean, you, you can't go to the store and buy the fullness of God or even a part of God. You can't buy, you know, piecemeal this thing either. You can't, there's no, where do you get the nature of God that you could be filled with? And the answer, if you're familiar with Ephesians by this point, I hope it's obvious. <laughs> the answer is that you were filled with the fullness of God by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is the pattern Paul has followed throughout the book of Ephesians, is it not? The Father predestines, the Son redeems, the Spirit regenerates and makes you alive. And he does that by sealing your heart to guarantee you of the eternal nature of your salvation. Or Ephesians 2, you're dead, the Father makes you alive by sending Jesus Christ to be the Redeemer, by sending the Holy Spirit to regenerate you, who will then abide in you and compel you to do the walks that he appointed for you to do, the the works he appointed for you to do. It's always that same order and we're seeing it here too. That you would comprehend the eternal divine nature of love that you would know the love of Christ it's building you towards a spirit where you will be sealed by the spirit you'd be filled with all the fullness of God this is the holy spirit's function in your life this is what he's doing he comes to you and he brings you faith of course this begins through faith verse 17 the christ would dwell in your heart through faith he dwells in your heart, Christ does, through the Spirit regenerating you and then sealing you, staying with you, filling you. And the Holy Spirit himself is divine. He is God. The Holy Spirit's not partially divine. He is fully divine. Think of all the distinctions you're very familiar with with, with Christ. You wouldn't say that Christ is part God. You wouldn't say he's 10% God or 50% God and You understand all the bad Trinitarian applications like Jesus isn't one third God. You know They're not the Transformers or Voltron or whatever and you piece them together and you get the full thing. (laughs) Each person of the Trinity possesses all the divine nature. The Son is the image of the Father. He's fully God. And I think our Trinitarian theology is generally good enough to, to keep up to that point. But we often don't apply that same thinking to the Holy Spirit. But it is true of the Spirit as well. The Spirit possesses all of the divine attributes. The Spirit is fully God. This is why it's so important to understand He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Fully. In union, He represents the Son's love towards the Father and the Father's love towards the Son. Fully. So there's not... The Holy Spirit doesn't represent part of God or only some of the affections of God. The Holy Spirit... Contains in his his identity, in his attributes, the divine fullness. The Holy Spirit resides in your heart at conversion. He comes and abides with you, depositing, is the word from Ephesians 1, these divine attributes as he resides within you. So if you understand the Holy Spirit is fully divine, then you're able to track in verse 19 that you are filled with the fullness of God. As he fills you and seals you and labors with you and strives with you, he brings the divine fullness into you. He does this by infiltrating how you think, by infiltrating how you live, and by causing you to fight sin and grow in godliness. This is what he does. This is why, by the way, in the charismatic world, this idea of being filled with the spirit is manifesting and speaking in tongues or being slain in the spirit where, you know, you get touched and you fall down backwards or... You have prophetic utterances or you say gibberish or you, you know, <laughs> shoot lasers out of your hands like Spider-Man kind of thing. Whatever it is, do you understand how the more almost the more extreme those examples are, the more blasphemous they are. Because they're describing that's the fullness of God as those kinds of ecstatic utterances. But the fullness of God is not in nonsense speech. That's not the fullness of God. Fullness of God is not in laying people out, that's not the fullness of God. The fullness of God is the divine attributes. It's the eternal nature of God and all of his perfections. You just minimize that and cut it completely out when you say the spirit-filled life is those kind of things. No, The spirit-filled life is this life right here where the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin and strengthens you so that you grow up big and strong. That's the spirit-filled life. So just that can, sound, that can sound theological to the point where it doesn't sound practical. So let me explain how that operates, how this kind of growth really operates in the real world. Like right now, for example, I'm preaching a sermon. You're hearing with your ears the words that I'm preaching. Hopefully the words are from the Bible. So I'm taking the Bible giving you words and concepts to help you understand and communicating them with my mouth. The sound travels across the room to your ears, hits your ears, goes into your mind, your short-term memory, and it resonates there. For some of you, it stays there for 30 seconds. For some of you, it was turned away on entrance, you know, <laughs> airport closed, and try somewhere else. <laughs> but for some of you, the plane lands and it gets into your mind and it stays there for 30 seconds or a few minutes or however long. I know on some, some days, you guys heard a sermon in your ABF this morning, and now you're hearing a sermon here, and some of you will come back to night church, and even on Valentine's Day, God bless you all, and you'll be back tonight. You'll hear a third sermon tonight, and you might even go home and live stream the Grace Church sermon this afternoon. You'll hear four sermons on this Sunday, and tomorrow morning, you definitely won't remember this one, for example. I mean, but that's not how this is functioning. It's not the idea that you can recall exactly what I said tomorrow or even this afternoon. It's functioning by getting into your mind and being there for a few minutes, and the Holy Spirit is taking some of these truths and applying them to your heart, feeding your heart with these truths. You get that those are idioms. The Holy Spirit is not grabbing those words that are in your short-term memory and, you know, ferreting them down your, into your actual physical heart. But the Holy Spirit it's a spiritual enterprise here. The Holy Spirit is taking the things that are in your mind and is applying some of them to your, to your heart, some of them to your spirit or your inner man, is Paul's phrase. And the more the Holy Spirit is applying those words and those principles, the more it's feeding your inner man. For a brand new believer, this is baby talk. So for a brand new believer, you're learning words, like you learned Trinity, or you learned divine fullness. These little words that you're learning and they're feeding your heart and they'll stay there for a little while and and they'll drift away at some point and they'll be fed again but your heart over time grows stronger. And it doesn't need those words, it already had those words, it grows out of those words to bigger words and to different words and to different ways of growing those concepts over time. So that the more mature you are, the things that you might hear in one sermon that are elementary now, that might be profound to you today, in five years will be elementary to you. You're like, of course. And then over time, those words start to build towers in your mind. They start to build concepts in your mind. They start to build a worldview, a framework, so that you're doing this for years and years and sermons and sermons. You start to have your worldview altered. And you start to see things in the world differently because of these theological towers that are built in your mind. A whole construct is built there. And the Holy Spirit is the one doing the building and he's doing this building through your faith. That's where it starts in verse 17, through your faith in Christ. So that your faith is in Christ. The word is preached. The Holy Spirit is applying these words, convicting you of sin. So when you grow rooted in love, you go out in the world and you're tempted to sin and the wind is beating against you, but you have a whole theological framework that resists sin and pushes you towards godliness and helps you perceive the world around you. That's the full image here of you growing up strong. Now, do you ever arrive to where you don't need any more sermons? (laughs) Do you ever arrive to the point where you are fully like Christ? Well, when you die and you see him face to face. (laughs) But not yet. Yet, right now, you have these paradoxes that you would be filled with the infinite God. And the Spirit is the one who does this by compelling you to think about the love of God. Let's go by contrast, again, the Pharisees, they knew the word of God in and out. And Jesus says, Luke 11, around verse 42, Jesus says, you Pharisees, you tie the mint and the cumin, you know all the ins and the outs, but you're rejected because you have neglected the love of God you can know all the things, but you don't have the love of God, then you're Jesus in John chapter 5. says, listen, the love of God isn't in you. Because if the love of God was in you, you would recognize that the Son of God possesses the love of God. And you would worship Him. This is the turnkey from knowledge to faith. That is love. You have the knowledge of God. You have faith over here. How do you get there? It's the love of Christ. The Holy Spirit applies it in your heart, and you grow in godliness. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11, Paul says, we worship a God of love. Romans 15, Paul says, I pray that you would stand firm in the faith and support me in ministry through the spirit of love. Ephesians 2, verses four through five, we looked at this a few months ago. God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So it's the love of God that motivates the spirit of God to make us alive through our faith in God. That's how Paul prays. The Holy Spirit would do his work in your life and produce spiritual maturity. Many of you are familiar with the book, My Heart, Christ Home. It's more of a booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home. Today it would be an extra long blog post <laughs> written by Robert Munger. He's a Presbyterian pastor who died, I think, maybe 10 years ago. But he wrote this book in 1950, I believe. So it's an older book, My Heart, Christ Home where he uses, this, he uses this verse here to talk about Christ moving into your heart. And he paints it in this picture of what if your heart was your house? Let's go with the image here, because it's certainly in the Greek that Christ is moving in. So what's the image here of Christ moving into your heart to produce spiritual maturity? And So he says, imagine that Jesus shows up to move into your house. And I won't read you the whole thing. But I'll, I will walk you through the tour that Jesus gets to the house in the book because that's, that's the best part of this book. It says, Jesus comes in your house and you say, let me give you a tour. And what room does Jesus want to see in your house first? And I love how he answers it. He's a Presbyterian pastor, by the way. First, Jesus would want to see my library, he says. So he takes him to the library to show him what books are in the library and you know, what he's reading. And, but then he, he realizes how this is looking Because is he reading things that Jesus would want him reading? So after a while, he becomes embarrassed by the library. And I'll tell you this right now. In our culture today, uh, most of our houses don't have libraries in them. I mean, today, just to get right to it, it would probably be your internet history. Where Jesus says, what are you reading? What are you feeding your mind? What are you looking at? What are you feeding your heart? Let me take, let me browse through those things. And now you get to start to feel the experience that Robert was having, imagining Jesus looking through his library. Well, in the story, by the way, he dusts off some of the books, the good books that were seldom used, he said. Dusts dusts them off and puts them on the table and says, try these. (laughs) And then he says, let's go to the family room. Where's your family hangout? What do you guys do as a family? How are you entertained as a family? Now, he didn't use the analogy, what do you watch on TV? But that would be very much an appropriate thing for our world. What kind of games do you play? What's in your Netflix account? As Jesus is in your house, what is he going to do with you and your family? What kind of things do you do with your family, and are they honoring the Lord? And then Jesus says, what's that room over there? And you say, oh, it's the dining room. I'm only there a few times a day, but I spend a lot of the day thinking about it. And so Robert asks you, what areas in your life do you do somewhat seldom, but spend a lot of time thinking about? What fuels your life? What fuels your spiritual life? And is Jesus welcome there? The areas of your life that just give you meaning and give you purpose, does, is Jesus welcome there? In the living room, Jesus says, oh, that's a nice couch. Let's meet here in the mornings and read together. And you say, okay. But have you ever had the experience where you have a house guest staying at your house and you say, oh, I'll meet you in the morning. And then you, perhaps you forget about it and you go away to work and you come home and he's still sitting there on the couch. He's been there all day because he thought you were going to meet him there. You spaced it. And so that became the normal practice in Robert's house with Jesus hanging out on the couch saying, I thought we were going to read together this morning. What happened? Oh, I overslept. I forgot. The workroom, Jesus asked about the workroom down in the basement. And in this little booklet, he says, oh, you have lots of expensive stuff here. Do you know how to use it even? Which I found really funny. Are you making anything for God's kingdom? Are you making anything for his kingdom? What are you using your time and your resources for? Because that's this part of your house. What are you making for God in his kingdom? So after you work through all of that, and you're like, okay, I'm going to make things for his kingdom. I'm going to spend time with Jesus. I'm going to strive to glory. That's what it means to have Jesus living in the home of your hearts. That's the whole point of this. But after you settle into this, then one day Jesus says, you know, you've got me staying on the second floor. I smell something horrible on the second floor. There's something dead up there. And so you walk up there, and I will read you this paragraph, because this is a very powerful paragraph from this. Jesus says, there's a peculiar odor in your house. There's something dead on the second floor. I think it's coming from the hall closet. Now, this is Robert again. As soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. Yes, there was a small hall closet up there on the landing, just a few square feet. In that closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things that I did not want anyone to know about, and I certainly did not want Jesus to see them. I knew they were dead and rotting things left over from my old life. And yet, why were they there? I loved them, of course, and I wanted them so much for myself that I was afraid to admit to anyone that they were there. So reluctantly, I went up to the door with him. As we rounded the stairs, the odor became stronger and stronger. He pointed at the door and he said, it's in there, some dead thing is in there. And I was angry with Jesus. That's the only way I can put it. I had given him access to my library, to my dining room, to the living room, to the work room, to the family room. And now he's asking me about a little two by four closet. I said to myself, this is too much. I'm not going to give you that key. Well, he said, reading my thoughts, if you think I'm going to stay up here on the second floor with that odor, you're mistaken. I'm going to take my bed out to the back porch. I'm certainly not going to put up with this. <laughs> so then I saw him start down the stairs. And Robert writes, When you've come to know and love Christ, the worst thing that can happen to you is the sense of fellowship retreating from you. And I had to surrender. I'll give you the key, I said sadly. And the story goes on and he says, but you're, speaking to Jesus, you're going to have to be the one to clean it out. I can't do it. And in the story, this is how I would finish it. Jesus says, I can't clean out somebody else's closet. You don't have a guest come over to your house and clean out your closet? And so Jesus says, sign the house over to me. Make it my house. Make this place mine. I know you don't have the strength to clean out the closet. Make it my place, and then I'll clean out the closet. Lord, we're grateful for your word in our life. We're thankful that you have moved into our hearts through faith, that you dwell with us. You convict us of sin. You sanctify us. And we do want to turn over every area of our life to you. We don't do so to earn your approval, of course not. We do so because we value fellowship with you. We value the experience of having you live in our hearts through faith. That's our only motivation here. We don't desire to be good people so that we can earn your approval. May it never be. We desire to grow in godliness because we want a deeper fellowship with you. I pray for anyone here today who has never signed over their house to you, who has never given you control of their life, I pray that today they would confess their sins and believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today, they would believe the gospel. I pray that you would give them the courage and the boldness to do that and cause them to lead a life of spiritual growth, growing in grace and godliness. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And now, for a parting word from Pastor Jesse Johnson. Thanks for joining us today. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I would love to meet you personally at Emmanuel Bible Church. Our service times and other church information is on our website at ibc.church. If you want information about the Master's Seminary and their Washington DC location, go to tms.edu. I hope this resource has been an encouragement to you and it helps you seek the Lord daily, serve others around you, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. May the Lord bless you.